Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Today, we're going to talk about what the future looks like for American democracy. In particular, we're talking to California Congressman Adam Schiff about what Democrats are doing to protect a democratic system that they say Republicans want to dismantle. Former President Trump and other Republicans' attempts to overturn the 2020 election are well documented. Trump encouraged local lawmakers and elections officials not to certify results. He asked the Secretary of State of Georgia to find enough votes to flip the winner of Georgia. Trump's lawyers brought unfounded cases to the courts, and Trump asked the Department of Justice to intervene. He ultimately pushed for the vice president and Congress to reject the nation's electoral votes on January 6th, which ended in his supporters attacking the Capitol. For years before that, he also told voters that American elections are fraudulent. Nonetheless, American institutions held. But in his new book, Schiff argues that they almost didn't, and that American democracy is still in trouble. His book is called Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could. And he's here with me today to discuss why he believes that's the case. Congressman Schiff represents California's 28th Congressional District and is the chair of the House Intelligence Committee. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be with you. The subtitle of your book is How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could. And I want to focus on that still could part. What specifically are you worried about in the future? Well, my paramount concern right now is what's going on around the country, uh, where you have the president who continues, the former president, to push out the big lie about the election, uh, that it was stolen or rigged, uh, and using that big lie uh, in state legislatures around the nation, uh, Republicans are passing laws that would strip independent elections officials of their duties. They're giving them over to partisans and partisan boards uh, or acolytes uh, of Donald Trump. Uh, and the whole, I think, raison d'etre for all of this is if they lose the election uh, and they cannot find uh, Brad Raffensperger to locate 11,780 votes um, that don't exist, they will find someone who else who will. Uh, so they are disenfranchising people, particularly people of color, uh, to try to ensure that they can win. Um, but they are also setting up to overturn the election if they lose. Uh, and it's not always by violent means that democracies come to an end. There may very well be another attack on the Capitol, but it would fail just like the last one. But where they may succeed in tearing down our democracy is in uh, eating away at the heart of our uh, election system. Uh, and that's my paramount concern. How close do you think the United States is to not being a democracy today? Uh, I, you know, I think we are still very much a democracy, but a lot of the guardrails have come down. Um, things that we never imagined could happen in this country have happened. Uh, I, you know, it was hard to imagine post-Watergate, another president of the United States using the Justice Department to protect those who were lying to cover up for him. But that's what Bill Barr did uh, in intervening in Roger Stone's case, someone convicted of lying to Congress and trying to intimidate other witnesses into lying to Congress uh, by intervening to reduce his sentence, by intervening to make the whole case uh, of Mike Flynn go away, uh, the former national security advisor for Donald Trump who lied to the FBI, but also using that Justice Department to go after the president's enemies. Uh, and of course, the, the, the betrayal of that Department of Justice, which is supposed to represent the interests of justice, is only one of innumerable examples. The, the frequent attacks on the press as the enemy of the people, uh, reportedly trying to raise postal rates on Amazon to punish the Washington Post, uh, is using the, the instruments of state power to censor the press. 
the, the flagrant violations of the Hatch Act, the flagrant violations of the Emoluments Clause. Uh, I introduced a bill called the Protecting Our Democracy Act that we hope will take up next month that, like the set of reforms passed after Watergate, is aimed to restore these guardrails. But there's a reason why, uh, I think, in the estimate of, of neutral observers, the United States has moved backward, not forward, in terms of our democracy. Uh, and we are still a democracy, but we are also not out of the woods. In your nightmare scenario, a lot of the things that you talked about potentially happening, the president and others tried in 2020. But the system held. There were guardrails and checks that kept things in place. None of the challenges in the court succeeded. The Supreme Court never really even entertained challenges to the legitimate results of the election. Do you have reason to think that in the future, those checks will not hold? You think that maybe the Supreme Court would overturn an election, that the United States military would not be on board with the legitimate results of an election? You know, the bad things happened, our system still held. What gives you reason to think it might not hold in the future? Well, because we were fortunate uh, in the last election uh, in a couple of respects. We we're fortunate that Joe Biden won and won handily. Uh, and we were fortunate that um, local and state elections officials did their job uh, and upheld their, their oaths of office. But those elections officials are being hounded now out of their posts and replaced with people who would do Donald Trump's bidding. Uh, and where the, the legal cases brought were frivolous um, and, and the lawyers representing the former president were, were clownish uh, with hair dye running down their face, um, we may not be so fortunate the next time. Uh, Why do you think that is? Uh, uh, well, I, I think that is because, again, uh, you know, people like Brad Raffensperger did the right thing. What happens if you have someone in that position who does the wrong thing? What happens if state legislature, legislators in Michigan or Pennsylvania this time uh, adhere to what Donald Trump wants and send a dual slate of electors? What happens uh, uh, if we get to Congress and the Electoral College were tied and it comes down to a single state? Uh, you can imagine the, the kind of uh, tumult the country would go through, uh, the kind of constitutional crisis we'd be in. So we cannot, I think, uh, take much solace in the fact that the system held because it barely held. Okay, so, I mean, you're painting a somewhat potentially dire picture of the future. Of course, the obvious question is, what are you going to do about it? Well, I, I think in terms of the, the most direct assault uh, on a democracy, there are several things that we can do and have to do. Um, first of all, we have to push back on the big lie. Uh, we have to push back on all those who would undermine uh, the public confidence in our election system for political purposes. Uh, if you persuade people that they cannot rely on our elections, that they're somehow rigged or fraudulent, then that paves the way to violence. So first, we need to, I think, uh, continue to uh, make clear, establish, investigate, expose to the public light exactly what happened with this insurrection uh, exactly what happened in, uh, in terms of the president, former president's role in pushing the big lie. So the public record is very important. The public education is very important. We also need to pass H.R. 1 and the John Lewis Voting Rights Bill uh, so that we can push back against these efforts to disenfranchise people, so that we can end the process of gerrymandering in which a minority of Americans can control the House of Representatives because of the gerrymander. Uh, and, and I will say also, because that pathway is a very difficult one, 
We cannot wait to see whether we succeed in the Congress with that. Uh, we must always also, uh, I think, embark on a Stacey Abrams-like effort in every state in the union to make sure that we uh, attack every hurdle put in the way of people's right to vote, uh, including using litigation where necessary. Okay, so I guess first and foremost, the public opinion aspect of this, which is convincing Americans to have faith in American elections. There's not very much that you as a Democrat, someone who's well known on both sides of the aisle, can do to convince Republican voters that American elections are legitimate if Republican leaders are not saying the same thing. So as a Democrat, as a member of Congress, what do you think you can do? And that's understanding that at this point, it looks like H.R. 1 is not going to pass. Well, I, I'm hoping that we can find a way to get H.R. 1 done, uh, that there is a pathway. I think it will require uh, a lot of time on task by the president, very personally with Joe Manchin. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, the effort this week to take up uh, voting rights legislation in the Senate, uh, which is expected to fail, is part of showing that uh, we've tried everything possible uh, aside from a carve out of the filibuster before we move to carve out the filibuster. Uh, so that uh, that Joe Manchin can make the case back home that he tried everything else to protect people's right to vote. Uh, and of course, you know, Mitch McConnell had no hesitation to carve out uh, stacking the Supreme Court uh, out of the filibuster. Uh, and to me, the case for an exception to the filibuster for voting rights is a far stronger, uh, easier case to make. So in some sense, any real structural changes that might happen that you think to fortify our democracy would rely on Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema agreeing to carve out the filibuster. They're taking up the Freedom to Vote Act, I believe, today. But the Freedom to Vote Act addresses a lot of other things beyond some of the most pressing concerns that you mentioned here today. It addresses things like gerrymandering and voter registration and so on. If the most pressing concern is an attempt to overturn a legitimate election after it happens, do you think there's space for some kind of standalone bill that tries to streamline the counting and certification process of American elections and leave the other, perhaps more politically controversial things aside? Uh, yes, and in fact, uh, I've been working with Zolofgren, Benny Thompson, Jamie Raskin uh, on a bill to reform the Electoral Count Act. Uh, which is, you know, frankly, a deeply uh, confusing and poorly drafted uh, legislation uh, that uh, that still guides us today um, after more than 100 years. And if we had that kind of nightmare scenario that you were asking me about, uh, and it came down to how do we interpret the provisions of that act, um, it would be subject to a lot of uh, confusion and ambiguity. So we were, are working on reforms that, that we think will have and hope will have the support of both conservative legal scholars and constitutional scholars, as well as liberal ones. Um, now, that doesn't mean that it's going to be easy to get passed, but uh, I think that, that both parties should, in the abstract, have an interest in clarity so that, that we know what the process is and should be uh, if it should come down to the wire uh, in the Electoral College. Some of the efforts to protect democracy, as you describe them, would require upending political norms. For example, something like ending or changing the filibuster. Do you think that any norms need to be sacred in the process of protecting democracy? Or is it okay to kind of sideline some norms to try to protect others? You know, I, uh, one of the uh, 
one of the things I write about uh, in the book is, you know, the realization uh, during the impeachment trial and the aftermath of the first impeachment trial, there's nothing wrong in the draftsmanship of the impeachment clause. Uh, there's nothing wrong with our Constitution. It, it's still as brilliant as ever. Um, the problem is if members of Congress don't uh, live up to their oaths, if they don't um, give those provisions in the Constitution the meaning the founders intended, uh, if, they don't, uh, if they're not guided by uh, ideas of right and wrong, if they're not informed by the truth, none of it works. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there are very real human limitations in how much you can draft your way out of a constitutional crisis if the people who are, are, are in a position to apply those provisions don't do so in good faith. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, one of the reasons I am optimistic is that um, there are, I think, uh, a vast majority of Americans uh, who care passionately about our democracy and that legacy that we have as a country um, and are far more devoted to it than those who at the moment want to tear it down. But I will say that we're at a dangerous point because the Republican Party has abandoned its ideology. It's not a party of ideas anymore. It is a cult of one man, the former president. Um, and as long as that's the case, that party is just going to have to be beaten at the polls. When it comes to preserving democracy, if the argument is, well, we just can't let Republicans win, that seems like it's going to be a bit of a, a challenge. You know, if history is any indication, Republicans have a very good chance of winning Congress next year. And if the specifics of our current situation are any better indicator, President Biden is currently underwater by seven points with the American public. So I think part of the Democrats or your plan for buttressing democracy probably has to understand that Republicans are still going to win elections and may well win elections very soon. But you're also at the same time describing a situation where if that comes true, if Republicans win elections, we're on the cusp of becoming an autocracy. So why hasn't reform been more of an urgent issue for this Congress and this president? Well, first of all, you know, let me take issue with some of the assumptions underlying your question. It's certainly true that we are a very narrowly divided Congress and uh, Democrats hold a very slim majority. Um, but it's also true that that historic trend that you mentioned of uh, the, the president in power losing seats in the midterm uh, is premised in part on the fact that when that president is elected, they swept into office a lot of members of the same party in districts that demographically uh, they, they shouldn't have won to begin with. Um, and that just didn't happen in the presidential election. We lost House seats. Uh, in my view, we've already had the correction. Uh, and I'm convinced that whoever wins the upcoming midterms uh, won't win by much. Whichever party is in power won't be in power by very much. So I think it's going to be a very close election. Uh, and I also think that without Donald Trump on the ballot, um, our voters are still very heavily motivated. Theirs are somewhat less motivated. So I am very hopeful wow. about the midterms. <laughs> but but let me just, you know, let me just say this. Polls don't necessarily agree with that. But yeah, continue. Yeah, well, you know, uh, uh, the pollsters uh, have uh, have not been proven all that accurate uh, in the era of Donald Trump. Uh, but, you know, let me just say that um, if Kevin McCarthy were to become speaker, uh, functionally, Donald Trump would be the speaker. Uh, Kevin McCarthy has shown no willingness, ability to stand up to the former president in any way. Um, and, uh, and that would be, I think, the first step 
uh, towards a, a Trump presidency and utter disaster for the country. Uh, you can draw a pretty straight line from the former president's um, uh, escape from accountability in, uh, in regards to his Russia misconduct to the very next day after Bob Mueller testified. Um, the president, former president was on the phone again seeking help from yet another foreign nation, and this time Ukraine. And when he wasn't held accountable for that misconduct by the Senate, you can draw another straight line between that uh, and his effort to cheat in the last election and the insurrection. If he were to be elected again, where does the straight line go now? To what greater calamity than the insurrection will that line point? Uh, and I, for one, don't want to find out, uh, which is why I think both in the midterms and certainly in the next presidential cycle, democracy will be on the ballot. So I have to wonder here, you know, the talk about democracy ending seems in some sense to be an electoral strategy. Tell people, you know, this election is it. You know, you have to elect Democrats or democracy could be in peril. But if you if you truly believe that, that like de American democracy is potentially on the cusp of ending, wouldn't shoring up that democracy and doing whatever you could to try to buttress it be basically the number one thing on the president's agenda when he comes into office? Uh, yes. And, and, you know, it certainly is the number one agenda as far as I'm concerned. Uh, president Biden thinks that the democracy agenda, and I think he's right about this, is twofold. Uh, it's making sure that we pass H.R. 1 and we pass the voting rights legislation. He also thinks that these other major bills uh, to invest in the nation's infrastructure, invest in the nation's people, the Build Back Better Act, are also part of a democracy agenda. And I agree with him because at the end of the day, if the democracy doesn't deliver, um, it's not going to survive. Uh, part of the reason I think that people voted for Trump in 2016 is that millions of people uh, were working their hardest all over the country, particularly in distressed areas, with nothing set aside for their retirement. They were going to have to work till they dropped, and their kids, if they were lucky enough to get an education, uh, were in debt and had no job when they got out. Uh, and he spoke to those people, and he offered, he promised that he was going to help them, and of course he never did. Um, but, but the fact that there was that kind of uh, hunger for, for help um, as a result of global changes in the economy has propelled this wave of xenophobic populism both at home and abroad. So addressing that underlying economic need is also part of the democracy agenda. But, but to me, I would agree with you, nothing takes priority, primacy over passage of the voting rights legislation in H.R. 1. Uh, because to me, if the foundation of our democracy, that is the right to vote, um, fails, then, then whatever edifice is on top of that comes crumbling down. Do you think that Americans care about commitment to democracy enough that it will help determine how they vote? I'm counting on it. Um, and look, uh, there's some distressing numbers talking about polling, distressing numbers of Americans, particularly young Americans who, young Americans who question whether democracy is the right model. Uh, and, and we're in a competition, not just at home, uh, apparently, with where the Republican Party is now about democracy versus autocracy, but we're in that competition around the globe. Uh, China is advocating what it calls its model that can deliver economic prosperity and, and law and order. Uh, they point to scenes of people climbing on the Capitol building and gouging police uh, as exhibit A, uh, that democracy can't maintain order and, and the economy at the same time. Now, the Chinese model, people need to know, is totalitarianism. Uh, and people cannot be lulled into thinking that that's somehow an alternative to democracy. It isn't. 
But around the world, people are questioning whether democracy is the right model. Uh, we are in, a, I think, a, a struggle not just for the heart and soul of America, but for the heart and soul of people around the world and with huge consequences. There was an academic research paper done by Matthew Graham and Mylan Svalik at Yale that suggests it's only a tiny, tiny portion of the electorate, 3.5%, that is willing to vote against a politician whose positions they agree with because that politician violates democratic norms. And I should say that this is among both Democrats and Republicans. And a big reason for this is because people increasingly feel that politics is existential. You know, you have described politics in existential terms today. You know, if we lose these future elections, democracy could end. So in an environment where basically both parties feel like every election is an existential threat to their way of life, their system of government, et cetera, how do you ever lower the temperature so that partisanship doesn't trump everything, including commitment to democracy? Well, you know, first of all, I would reject the equivalence between where the Democratic Party is and where the Republican Party is. Well, that's just where the voters are. Of course, the lawmakers and how they talk about democracy has been very different. You know, there has not been a Democratic president in modern history who has behaved the way that Donald Trump has. But, you know, how voters feel about commitment to democracy is its own thing. Well, uh, certainly. Um, but you can't ignore the, the impact uh, of the party leadership uh, in shaping public opinion. Uh, and uh, in terms of when will we be able to lower the temperature, uh, how is that going to be possible as long as Donald Trump is the leading voice in the Republican Party? As long as he gets up every morning uh, determined to find new and inventive ways to divide uh, and uh, embitter Americans to each other. As long as he believes that politically it's advantageous for him to blame uh, people's economic woes on people that don't look like them, uh, predominantly people of color. Um, is it possible to overcome that when that's the dominant voice in the Republican Party and that voice is amplified over and over again on Fox primetime, on Newsmax, on OAN? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, and so what it will take, in my view, is nothing less than the repudiation of Donald Trump and Trumpism, which is why it's such a terrible tragedy that when Republican leadership did flirt with casting him aside after that insurrection, when they saw the terrible end to which he brought the country they had that failure of will, that failure of courage. And that has essentially sentenced America to several more years of this. As long as Donald Trump is the presumptive nominee, and I believe he will run and he will be the nominee, um, we will not, not get past this divisive time. This, I guess this is hard because, you know, if, as these studies suggest, voters aren't necessarily going to hold politicians to account for violating democratic norms, you know, how do you hold people to account for violating democratic norms or even laws? Well, you know, I think that uh, part of the challenge is we live in such different information worlds now. Um, the information that, that, that I see is different than my neighbor sees, particularly on social media, but also the, the information they tune in to see uh, on cable TV. And it's increasingly difficult uh, for people to talk to each other. Uh, it's increasingly difficult to hold people accountable. I'm convinced that if Richard Nixon had had Fox primetime, he would have never been forced to leave office. Uh, and so this is, I think, one of the cardinal challenges facing the country, and that is um, we need to figure out how to, how to survive uh, as, a, as a democracy in a, a world in which we uh, get such different information. Um, I, among the most corrosive things, I believe, in the last four years 
um, is this relentless assault on the truth. Um, and and uh, so, yeah, I mean, sure, you know, but if voters look at this and are like, OK, well, this is what it is, but this is my team and that's my team. And we're not going to hold people to account for, you know, violating democratic norms or telling lies or what have you. Where is the check in all of this? Well, look, uh, the check is only as good as uh, as you and I. Uh, the, the check is only as good as those willing to make the case uh, and those willing to uh, put forward the facts uh, and call for reasoned decisions on the basis of those facts. There's no magic button here to push. Uh, it's hard grinding work until we get through this period. Um, I, you know, I consider, you know, one of the rays of light is the fact that we are working in a bipartisan way on this select committee, that we have two Republicans who are, are you know, willing to uh, adhere to their oath of office, who are willing to tell it straight. Uh, you know, Liz Cheney's statement uh, as we held Steve Bannon in contempt last night was the most powerful repudiation of Donald Trump's big lie. Um, and until we get through this period, that's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to keep we're going to have to keep on pushing out relentlessly the truth. Uh, there's just no alternative. Uh, there's no mechanism that you can point to and say this is a shortcut. It's going to be long and hard work. Um, but at the end of the day, we'll get through it. I, you know, I, I do think that, uh, um, you know, one of the propellers of this, as I was mentioning, though, um, and one of the reasons I'm optimistic is that there were there was a perfect storm of awful that got us to where we are. There were changes in the global economy that put millions of jobs suddenly at risk. Uh, the changes in information uh, in which lies and fear and anger traveled now with virality. Uh, and you add all that up, include a pandemic in which conspiracy theories proliferate. Uh, and you, on top of all of that, add the supreme arsonist of Donald Trump. And you get what we've gotten over the last several years. But those underlying conditions are not going to last forever. Uh, and we need to attack those underlying conditions even as we attack the big lie and all the small lies that are the scaffolding of the big lie. You mentioned representatives Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. I'm curious, who in the Republican Party do you trust to uphold America's commitment to democratic government? And for some context, Depending on which vote it was, about 30 to 40 percent of Republicans in the House voted to certify the electors on January 6th. 80 to 90 percent of Republicans in the Senate voted to certify the electors on January 6th. Do you think those numbers, the 90 percent in the Senate, the 30 to 40 percent in the House, that those are the Republicans you can rely on in this conflict that you see over the future of democracy? Uh, you know, I, I don't know that we can rely on those numbers. I, you know, I was very disappointed, for example, to see and distressed to see uh, Chuck Grassley in Iowa uh, talking down the significance of Donald Trump's effort to use the Justice Department uh, to coerce Georgia into withholding its slate of electors or sending a separate slate of electors um, or to use the Justice Department to, to announce uh, uh, phony claims of investigations into massive fraud. Uh, in order to overturn the election. Um, and, and, you know, for someone who, who is supposed to be an institutionalist, to be downplaying the significance of that, you know, is, is deeply problematic. Um, but, you know, I, I do want to say this, and, and, and I spend a lot of time in the, in the book profiling Republicans who are courageous. Uh, you know, for every John Ratcliffe, 
who became the, the head of the intelligence community and was willing to politicize uh, and bend uh, and break the intelligence uh, to, to suit Donald Trump, there was a Dan Coats, a former Republican senator from Indiana, uh, very conservative, who was unwilling uh, to, to lie for Donald Trump about Russia or North Korea uh, and was willing to risk his job and lost his job. Uh, over it. And, you know, those a- examples of the Dan Coatses and uh, and I don't even know what the party affiliation of uh, these great foreign service officers, the Marie Ivanoviches and uh, Fiona Hills and, and Bill Taylors and Alexander Vindman's, those are the folks who are going to carry us through. And there are millions of people like them all over the country. But do you feel as though you have some sort of core constituency within the Republican Party amongst Republicans in office today that essentially agree with you on democratic principles? Uh, you know, my sense um, is that a couple of things. First, uh, in the country, in terms of Republicans at large, uh, I, I think Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger re- represent a significant number of them. Not the majority, but a significant number of them. Uh, I would like to believe that they represent the future of the Republican Party when it becomes, once again, a party of conservative ideology. Uh, in terms of my, my uh, colleagues in the House of Representatives, um, I, you know, one test will come up next month with the, uh, the, when we take up the Protecting Our Democracy Act. Um, a lot of the pieces of this bill were Republican-led in the past. Uh, provisions to expedite the enforcement of congressional subpoenas and strengthen protections for inspector generals and whistleblowers. A lot of these things have Republican provenance. Now, will they support them? Um, or will they, will they oppose them because they're, they're too scared of Donald Trump? Um, they'll have to make that choice. Uh, and, you know, that might be a good barometer um, of, of where that party is and how many can be counted upon. We'll get an we'll even sooner uh, sense of that uh, this week if we uh, take up, as I expect, uh, the contempt of Steve Bannon. Um, Republican members of the House will have to decide whether they wish to foreclose their power of oversight, whether they wish to uh, allow people to simply defy a subpoena because they'd rather not come in um, and cripple their own institution, uh, whether their, their fear of the former president outweighs uh, their, their support for our democracy. You're on the January 6th commission, which is what you just mentioned. And that's looking into the violent attack on our capital. About 20% of Americans said across a number of surveys that violence would be at least a little bit justified if their party did not win the 2020 election. And there was almost no difference between Democrats and Republicans. Of course, the Capitol attack that you're looking at was amongst Trump supporters. How worried are you about future political violence? I'm deeply worried about it. Uh, It's the natural consequence of uh, efforts to cast doubt uh, on the whole elections process. I mean, if you can't count on, you know, the ballot to decide who governs, then then you look at other remedies like violence. And so I'm deeply concerned about it. Uh, and, uh, you know, the violence was directed at the U.S. Capitol. Um, it may be directed elsewhere, at state capitals, uh, at local government. Um, you know, we see, you know, around the world, uh, dangerous illustrations with a British parliamentarian, another British parliamentarian stabbed to death. Um, and... And so this is a, a terrible trend. Um, uh, you know, it's hard, you'd be hard pressed to find members of Congress these days that don't get death threats. And some 
like myself all too regularly. And uh, and yes, so it is very much top of mind. Bright Line Watch, which is a group of academics who study democracy globally and here in the United States, started polling Americans about their wishes to break up the country based on region. And, you know, this is just an abstract polling question, but a startlingly high number of people responded that they could support breaking up the country. I mean, is frankly that something that you worry about? Like amongst lawmakers, when you talk about this kinds of stuff, do you talk about worries about violence, civil war, breaking up the country? Like, does it get that bad in your mind? Well, it certainly, you know, has us talking about political violence uh, and being uh, extraordinarily alarmed uh, by the prospect of more political violence. Um, I'm not surprised, frankly, by the polling you mentioned that uh, an increasing number of Americans look with favor on a breakup of the union. Um, and, and that ought to set off alarm bells for us. Uh, I think part of what has contributed to that is uh, the fact that um, the reaction to this virus has been so different from place to place. Uh, and you need, you need national unity to conquer this violence. Um, if, if we don't get vaccinated, we're never going to be able to put an end uh, to this virus and we're going to have to deal with its consequences and, and uh, preventable deaths for years and years to come. Uh, and I think that has really contributed. I mean, the, the amount of anger among those who are vaccinated towards those who are not vaccinated um, and, and exposing, you know, the rest of the country to danger and, uh, and the economic damage that results from it, uh, I think, is one of the drivers of this. So ultimately, final question here. What do you think citizens can do to, you know, buttress democracy? Well, you know, I think that all of us need to figure out what role we can play right now, and we can all play a role. Um, one of the things that I, I mentioned in the book is we can't all be Marie Ivanovich, uh, but we can figure out in our own world, um, what can we do uh, in our civic life, our corporate life, our private life, our public life, at a time when the democracy really needs us? Uh, and there are lots of good ways for people to get involved. And, and what I suggest to people is don't try to do everything. Uh, that way, paralysis lies. Just decide on the one thing that you are going to do. Uh, and that one thing could be getting involved in, in one of those Stacey Abrams efforts, or it could be, you know, just trying to talk to your neighbor. Uh, I tell the, 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 you know, the scene of uh, a conversation I had in the book uh, when I arrived in Charlotte and left the airport and was waiting for my Uber. Uh, and someone came up to me and, and wanted to talk about the Russia investigation and, um, and uh, how revealing it was to me because... Um, I was able to, uh, you know, sort of put the shoe on the other foot and describe um, what we knew of the Trump campaign's uh, efforts to get Russian help in the election and said, well, what if it was the Hillary Clinton campaign that had done that? Uh, and, uh, you know, at the end of the conversation, he was like, well, that, that looks like collusion to me. Um, and sometimes, you know, you got to have that one-on-one -on -one conversation to break through uh, to your neighbor. Sometimes you need to have that conversation to break through to members of your family. Um, but there's something that all of us can do, and uh, I'm confident we're going to get through this. But what we do right now will determine how quickly we get through it and how much damage we have to suffer along the way. All right, let's leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Congressman Adam Schiff is chair of the House Intelligence Committee. His new book is called Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could. My name is Galen Drew. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidegary-Curtis is on audio editing, and Emma Riley is our intern. 
You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a reading or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.